Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all this morning as we kind of come and go during these summer Sundays. Gives me a chance to visit some of our other campuses along the way and gives us all a chance to hear from some of our other great teachers and pastors here on staff. So I hope you've been enjoying the journey this summer. Uh, this morning, we're going to change the focus of our Reset series just a little bit and catch up on something that happened uh, earlier this summer that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. On June 26th, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States determined that uh, same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marriage, which made gay marriage legal in all 50 of our states. Now, it was a landmark decision that has prompted all kinds of celebration, concern, commentary from just about every corner of society. So we don't want to let the summer pass without taking a few moments to offer some biblical perspective for all of us, wherever we might be on, uh, in our feelings about these things, to, to process that decision, what it means for us as Christ followers, what it means for our culture, what it means for the church. Now, for those who are feeling really nervous right about now, I just want to relax. We're, we're not going to get political this morning. We're not going to get graphic. We're not going to get dogmatic about things. I'm very intentionally sitting at a table this morning. I'd like this to feel more like a conversation than a lecture. Uh, an honest, genuine, heartfelt, ongoing conversation as together we try to seek, discern, and follow God's leading in this and, and every other area of life. So thanks for entering into the conversation with a generous spirit and, and an open heart. I can't guarantee I'll stay in my seat the whole time, but I'll try to do that, okay? Now, before we jump into that question in particular, I would like to frame this conversation in the larger context of our Reset series because I think it does have relevance for us as we get ready to begin our new year of school and work and ministry. So hang with me for a minute. About 300 or so of us Grace Chapel folks are just back from a week at Camp of the Woods. It's a Christian conference center uh, up in the Adirondacks. And so for a week, we enjoyed the beauty of Lake Pleasant, uh, the companionship of Christian friends and family, inspiring worship, helpful teaching, a welcome break from the stress and strain of our everyday working lives. The toughest decision we had to make was whether to stay on the beach or play another round of mini golf, something like that, okay? One of the nice things about camp is the safety of the environment. And I don't mean just physical safety, but, but spiritual safety. Just about everyone there shares Christian faith and values. You can speak freely about the Lord without worrying about offending someone or being misunderstood. You're free from many of the temptations and distractions of, of everyday life. There are no TVs around the place. The uh, internet service is lousy, and you just sort of forget about all those things. Now, you can go a whole week without hardly hearing a swear word, unless maybe on the basketball court. I don't know. But for the most part, it is such a beautiful, safe, healthy, spiritually rich environment. You just kind of relax you enjoy God and his world and his people and his many, many good gifts to us. Which is why driving away from camp is really, really hard. One family calls it the saddest day of the year. <laughs> because you know you're headed back to reality. Not just to the stress and strain of school and work and all those things, but back to the rough and tumble ethics of the marketplace. Back to the salty language of the work site and the locker room, 
Back to the sleazy scenarios on primetime TV. Back to feeling like one of very few or only Christ followers in your office or school or neighborhood. Always kind of watching what you say, not wanting to offend someone or be misunderstood. Now, whether you make it to a Christian camp or not, I think one of the things we appreciate about summer vacations is a chance to pull away for a weekend, a week, or more, and to kind of pull away from everyday life and world and kind of hunker down in the safety of folks we love in a familiar place and those who probably share our faith and values. September means back to reality. And for many, that means back to a culture that's feeling more and more challenging to people of Christian faith. It only takes an hour or so with the radio or the newspaper or the internet to, to realize that you're not in camp anymore. So as we continue to talk about resetting ourselves for the year to come, uh, we'd like to talk this morning about resetting our perspective. It's important as it is to reset our calendars and our priorities and our rhythms of life. I feel like we also need to reset our perspective on, on the world in which we live, our, uh, our approach to uh, people around us and, and the society that we're all a part of, to, to understand afresh uh, the role that God would have us to play in the world in which we live. The Supreme Court decision was probably one of the more recent reminders that we're really not at camp anymore. Now, that decision perhaps feels like old news to us here in Massachusetts. It's been the reality for uh, quite a few years now. To some, perhaps it feels like good news. But I think we'd all acknowledge it is a pretty dramatic departure from the Judeo-Christian view of marriage that has been so widely accepted in our nation for a long time. So how do we navigate this changing cultural landscape? How do we best honor and honor God and, and live the gospel when, when, when we're in the minority? When perhaps we feel like our faith and values sometimes are misunderstood or maligned or even threatened? These are some of the questions I'd like to go after as we think about how to reset our perspective. Now, here at Grace, we come from a variety of Christian and non-Christian traditions. We are all at very different places in our spiritual journeys. Some are longtime followers of Christ with deeply held beliefs and convictions and practices. Others are brand new to the following Christ and just beginning to understand it. Others are still investigating Christian faith and deciding whether or not to embrace it at all. We represent a variety of political and social perspective on things, and, and we, we are grateful for the diversity of the congregation and the way it stretches our faith and our relationships. And so to be sure, that diversity is going to be a part of this kind of a conversation as well in terms of uh, human sexuality and same-sex marriage. For, for many who are here this morning... Gay marriage probably feels like a, a tragic departure from God's will, something that threatens the well-being of people and society. For, for some here this morning, gay marriage may feel like a, a necessary and a reasonable accommodation to the realities of human experience and the culture in which we live today. For some here today, gay marriage may feel like a victory for 
for, for their friends or their family members or even for themselves. There are some who wish the church would come out more strongly against some of these things and others here who wish the church would be more accommodating and even affirming of some of these things. And there are others probably who wish I would just be preaching on prayer or Bible study this morning. <laughs> even a sermon on tithing would feel more comfortable than this. All that to say, given our topic uh, and the feelings around it, at some point in the message this morning, you may feel like clapping or saying amen. At another point, you may feel like getting up and walking out of the room. I'm going to ask you to do neither. I'm going to ask you to hang with me. Like, we'd like this to be a community in which we don't walk out on each other. A community in which we listen to each other. Where we respect each other where we challenge each other. Believing that the Spirit often does His best work in community and that Christ is formed in us as we do life and faith together. So, having said all that, take a deep breath and let's go to a passage of Scripture that I believe can guide our conversation for a few moments this morning. It's found in the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, We'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. So I'd like to read the passage through and then pull out a few principles. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Now, as I see it, this passage calls us to three commitments that I believe can reset our perspective on the changing culture in which we find ourselves. Now, these three commitments could apply to a variety of challenging issues. We'll apply them in particular to issues of uh, marriage and sexuality this morning, but they could apply in a variety of ways. We're going to spend most of our time on the first two commitments. And the first one is this, a commitment to genuine respect, even for those who see things differently than we do. Genuine respect. To respect someone is to treat them as a person of value. To say that they are worthy of our time, attention, care, and, and cooperation when, whenever possible. Now, if you have strong feelings or convictions around some of these things, that, that may feel like a tall order. But it's something the Scripture very clearly calls us to. Peter writes, show proper respect to everyone. Now, this is a striking statement, especially when you consider the, the context in which Peter wrote these words. The original recipients of this letter were living in the Roman Empire, in a region of the empire that we would now call Turkey. So they're living in a polytheistic culture, a culture marked by sexual libertarianism, 
a culture marked by a disregard for the sanctity of life when it came to not just unborn children, but unwanted younger children towards the infirm, towards people with disabilities. It was a culture that was very hostile to people who did not bow down to the gods of the empire. And the king Peter's referring to is most likely Nero, who ruled about this time in the middle of the first century. Now, in some regards, Nero was a very effective and efficient administrator, but his ethics and methods left a lot to be desired. He had his own mother and one of his wives murdered because they interfered with his affairs. He used public funds to support a reckless, lavish lifestyle. And when Rome nearly burned to the ground, Nero blamed the Christians, unleashing a wave of persecution against God's people all across the empire. No wonder these believers sometimes felt like strangers and aliens in the world. And sometimes we feel that way too. Sometimes we feel out of sync with the way culture seems to be drifting or the way many of our friends and colleagues seem to be thinking about things. Sometimes we feel as though our faith is under attack. Sometimes it feels as though we've become the bad guys. At the very least, we're unenlightened and intolerant. At worst, we're bigoted and hateful. So how do we show respect in that kind of an environment? And yet that's exactly what Peter calls his readers to, show proper respect to everyone. So now what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, to begin with, it means giving people the freedom not to believe in God or follow his ways as we understand them. We need to recognize that increasing numbers of people in our country and our circles don't see things the way we do when it comes to faith and God and Scripture and all these other sorts of things. We're often uh, told that 80% plus of the American population believes in God, and there's probably some validity to that number. But I recently came across a study of readers of the New York Times that suggests only about 40% of New York Times readers believe in God. Now, obviously... New York Times readers represents a small segment of the population, but it's probably more representative of our friends and colleagues in the Northeast than readers of the Kansas City Chronicle. So we need to understand and accept the fact that that's where many people are today. And so we need to reset our expectations of people around us. They're, we should expect the majority of people to care really what the Bible says let alone to believe it's the Word of God. So to, to lead with Bible verses in a conversation or to argue from Christian tradition is not likely to get very far in the conversation. If our voice is going to be heard at all, it needs to be heard in a spirit of mutual respect and ongoing, engaging dialogue. Showing respect also means giving people the freedom to disagree with us without impugning their character or their motives or their faith. Clearly, there are differing views on human sexuality and marriage, not only in the culture, but even within the church as well. 
Now, I won't try to speak for every Bible-believing Christian this morning, but let me speak very personally. I believe God designed marriage to be the lifelong, intimate union between a man and a woman. Fundamentally, in the Scripture, marriage is not just about love and commitment and intimacy. It is also about oneness. In fact, it is fundamentally about oneness. Two different complementary beings coming together physically, emotionally, and spiritually in a way that reflects the oneness of God himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one being. It's a oneness that reminds us of the oneness of Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man. It's a oneness that speaks to the oneness between Christ and his church, the oneness that will someday exist between heaven and earth. This oneness, this miraculous, mysterious union of disparate entities to form one new entity, it's at the very heart of all things, of ultimate reality. Because when things become one like that in that mysterious, miraculous way, it is generative. It's creative. It's life-producing which is why procreation becomes possible when a man and woman become one flesh. That's why marriage, as God designed it, is so essential to human flourishing. Now understand, I'm not speaking here about, about the image of God in individual people. Every human being equally bears the image of God. When we come to the institution of marriage, we're simply saying that marriage was designed fundamentally, to reflect the oneness of God. Now, unfortunately, the church has not taught that very well, and the church hasn't always lived that very well. And that's part of the confusion surrounding marriage today. Certainly, two people of the same sex can love each other, be committed to each other, be intimate with each other, be faithful to one another, serve one another. And given the realities of human experience in our culture, Perhaps there needs to be some legal, recognized way of acknowledging that relationship. But what two people of the same sex can't do is become one flesh in a way that is procreative and that reflects the oneness of God himself. And so ultimately, that's why many of us would have preferred that the institution of marriage be reserved for male female relationships. It's not about depriving people of commitment and love and intimacy and legal protection and definition. It's simply about what marriage represents, oneness. And that, that's why we don't perform gay marriages at Grace Chapel. It's just not consistent with our understanding of marriage as God designed it. Having said all that, as of last month, same-sex marriage is now the law of the land. And so while some of us may disagree with that decision, we need to respect people's freedom to enter into those relationships and to treat our friends and neighbors and family members with dignity and equality and with kindness. Some sectors of the church invested a lot of energy resisting the approval of gay marriage. 
Well, how about now if we invest equal amounts of energy reaching out in love and kindness to serve and minister to and with the gay community? And just as I'm asking the evangelical community to be respectful of those who see things differently, I'm also asking the, the LGBT community to be respectful for those of us who, who hold to a more traditional understanding of marriage. Please, don't assume we're, we're haters or bigots simply because we disagree over something that feels very important to us. Surely we can respect each other and our opinions on these things. To respect someone is to take them seriously. It's to listen to their stories, to understand their experience, even to feel their pain. What does it feel like to be a child of five or seven or 12 and suddenly realize that you're different from other kids, that you like boys instead of girls or vice versa? What does it feel like to be teased mercilessly, even bullied, simply because of that? What does it feel like to every night go to bed praying that God would take that away and wake up in the morning and find you're still feeling the same way? And what does it feel like for a child, for a young person, to not be able to tell the most important people in his or her life family, and the church, to not be able to tell them what's happening on the inside for fear they might not be loved, they not, might not be wanted around anymore. What does it feel like to be turned down for a job or an apartment simply because your sexual desires might be different than another person? Have we taken the time to listen, to ask to listen, to understand the experience of people who experience life differently than we do. To respect someone is to stop telling them why you think they're wrong all the time. To respect someone is to refrain from stereotypes, from name-calling, from discrimination, and certainly from bullying. To respect someone is to call them what they'd like to be called, gay or lesbian or he or she. To respect someone is to recognize that their humanity goes far deeper than their sexual orientation or behavior. Now, I'd also want to point out that respect doesn't mean that we can't speak or act for change in society when we feel it's warranted. It doesn't mean we can't advocate for causes or issues that we believe are important to human flourishing or to the, the advance of God's kingdom. Whether it's the institution of marriage or it's uh, human trafficking or creation care or the sanctity of life. We have political options as 21st century American Christians that 1st century Roman Christians did not have. We can vote. We can write letters. We can speak and advocate and march. We can run for office. And if God calls us to do those things, we should. But when we do those things, we don't do it in a way that disparages or demeans people who see things differently. And when other believers or churches 
don't feel called to those same actions, we don't question their orthodoxy or their commitment. Genuine respect is the first commitment we're called to. A second commitment is remarkable love, especially for those who are seeking or following Christ. Remarkable love. Peter writes, love the family of believers. Now, Peter wrote these words to a very diverse community of Christians. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There were slaves and there were masters. For sure, they had theological differences among themselves, at least as weighty and complex as marriage and sexuality. They would have had all kinds of reasons to part company or to pass judgment on each other. Peter urges them not to do that. For the sake of the gospel, he says, for the Lord's sake, for the sake of witness and mission. And so if ever there was a time for the church to show remarkable love, beginning with each other, this is that time. So what, this is a time for us to show remarkable love to people who are dealing with same-sex desires or attraction or to any kind of atypical orientation or desire. There are some believers who who struggle against those desires and attractions. They want to be free of them. They don't want to be identified by their, or defined by their orientation. There are some believers who are willing to identify themselves as gay or lesbian or something else, but have made a commitment to sexual purity and chastity and to refrain from sexual activity and even gay marriage. One such Christian person these days is a man named Wesley Hill. He's uh, written a helpful book entitled Washed and Waiting, which he describes his experience as a, as a gay young man growing up in a Christian church and how he has uh, grappled with that. He's now a contributing editor of Christianity Today magazine. So there are some believers who struggle against those, that orientation. There are some who identify with it but refrain from sexual intimacy and marriage. And then there are some Christians who embrace their gay or lesbian orientation and who believe the Bible supports faithful monogamous marriage for, for gay people. Now, I've read many, many of their books and their arguments and their articles. I've talked with them personally. Personally, I don't find their biblical arguments convincing biblically or pastorally but I do respect their desire to follow Christ, to glorify God, and their desire to be true to the Scriptures as well. So I want people in any of these groups to feel welcome to seek and follow Christ here at Grace Chapel. Let's remember, we're talking about our own children here, our own sons and daughters and nieces and nephews. We're talking about children and young people who've grown up in our own church. We don't want them to have to leave Grace Chapel because they feel they can't seek or follow Christ safely here. Now, speaking personally, once again, I continue to believe that same-sex intimacy and marriage falls short of God's good and glorious ideals for human beings and for human society. Now, 
No one, none of the experts can fully explain why a person experiences such desires and orientation. It's about 2 to 4% of the population that experience that. And yes, many would say, this is all I've ever known. I've grown up feeling this way. And very likely some of them have. There are physiological factors, there are psychological factors, there are environmental factors. There's a whole piece in Boston Globe today in the magazine section uh, about the uh, etiology of, of same-sex attraction. For most people, it is not simply a matter of choice. And we need to stop talking as though it's all that simple. As we reminded ourselves earlier, it must be incredibly confusing and isolating and even frightening to awaken to those kinds of feelings and desires and not know what to do with them. And, and yes, it, it must be very challenging to live a life of purity and chastity and, and maybe celibacy as you uh, follow Christ in that way. But love, love means wanting and working for the very best for other people. And I believe that the very best God has for human beings, heterosexual or homosexual, is that we would live lives of sexual purity. That's the truest, surest path to health and happiness for any human being. And so I, we will continue to call all of us to sexual purity. There are many, many gay Christ followers who have made that commitment to, uh, to chastity and to celibacy. Do they struggle sometimes with that commitment? Probably. Do they fail sometimes in keeping that commitment? Possibly. Just as we all struggle and fail sometimes when it comes to sexual purity. But if that's what God calls all of us to, then surely God's grace is sufficient for all of us as we make that journey, as we pursue it, as we fail and succeed. There's forgiveness, there's freedom, there's fresh start. There's grace. None of us come to Christ with our act together. None of us did. None of us came to Christ with our act together, sexually or otherwise. Spiritual formation is a lifelong process which begins right where we are when we come to Christ. It lasts a lifetime and it will not be complete for any of us until we see Christ face to face. So let's meet each other where we are on that journey, believing that Christ can and will lead each of us to maturity by his grace, by his time. That's a matter between every Christ follower and the Lord himself. So all this to say, this is a time for seekers and believers to stay in fellowship with each other, to listen to each other, to understand each other, to challenge each other as together we find ways to follow and honor and represent Christ in the world today. It's a time to show remarkable love not only for the family of believers, but for everyone, obviously, and in particular for the LGBT community. So first of all, let's stop saying, once and for all, hate the sin and love the sinner. A pediatrician once told me, you never say to a child before giving them a shot, this won't hurt. Because what's the one word they hear? Hurt. When we say hate the sin and love the sinner, guess what word people hear? 
It's not the word we want them to hear. So just expunge it from your vocabulary. It does not help. When a friend or acquaintance, whether LGBT or otherwise, asks your opinion on any of these matters, don't lead with a Bible verse. Don't deliver your stump speech. Don't give a simple answer. Try the Jesus method. Ask another question. That's an interesting question. Why do you ask? Hey, could we have coffee and talk about that? I'd love to hear more about your experience and your thoughts. Let's enter into relationship and dialogue and conversation. Believing God can do something good with that. Let's love people so surprisingly, so remarkable. Remarkably, they don't know what to do with us. That, that, that we blow all the stereotypes, that we, we demolish all the bad experiences they may have had in church or with Christian people. As a friend of mine likes to say, confuse them with love. Just, just blow their minds with love. A leading evangelical pastor has a surprising answer when gay friends ask him to perform their wedding ceremony. He says, very simply, I can't do that, given my views of marriage. But please send me an invitation. I'd love to come if I can. Now, you may feel differently about that, but the point is, remarkable love. Well, that leads to our third commitment. I don't have time to develop it, but I just want to touch on it briefly. We've talked about it a lot here at Grace. And that's a commitment to doing good for people and society every chance we get. Doing good. Peter mentions it several times in this little section here. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Remember now, these believers are living in a pagan society. They're being persecuted by the government. Their neighbors are blaming and accusing and mistreating and persecuting them. And yet Peter's advice here is go out there and do good. Be good neighbors. Be good citizens. Be good taxpayers. Be good husbands and wives. Be good slaves. Be good masters. He also calls on them, and don't miss this, he calls on them and us to pay more attention to our own sins and hang-ups than to everybody else's. How about that? Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul and do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. One of the reasons we have so little moral authority in our culture today is because we haven't done a very good job keeping our own lives and houses in order. So that's why here at Grace, the vast majority of teaching you'll hear from the pulpit and in any of our small groups focuses on our own spiritual formation and transformation. We don't spend a lot of time beating up on the culture, trying to tell other people how they should live or fix or change people. That's all God's work. We simply want to call ourselves and anyone who's interested to live the best life possible for them in relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to call ourselves and everyone we know to come to Christ just as we are, to find forgiveness, to find acceptance and belonging in a community of faith, and to find the freedom to begin becoming the people we were meant to be, the people deep in our hearts we want to be. That's good news, and it needs to sound, it needs to look like good news to the people around us. Someone has said that uh, sometimes it's more important to be good than to be right. Now, obviously, it's important to be both. But sometimes 
You need to lead with goodness instead of rightness. And this is one of those times. Some observers have suggested that if the church had responded to the AIDS crisis initially, if the church had responded to that crisis with care and compassion instead of judgment and blame, we might be in a very different environment here today in our relationship with folks around us. And so as we reset our perspective on these things and the world we we lead, let's, let's be as devoted to being good as we are to being right. In fact, Peter says our lives should not only be good, they should be beautiful. Beautiful. He uses a very distinctive word here in verse 12. It could be translated this way. Live such beautiful lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is a time to be a positive presence in our community and our city. This is a time for us to work for the common good every chance we get. This is a time for us to be so helpful that even those who disagree with us can't help but appreciate us. This is a time for us to be so wise and loving and good that we remind people of Jesus. And that's where Peter ends this section. Verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus was amazing. Jesus extended welcome and grace to every person he met, no matter who or where they were. And at the same time, he called every person he met to a life that was better and more beautiful than they ever could have imagined possible. A life in relationship with him. So maybe that's how we best honor God and represent, live out the gospel in our changing culture. By living such beautiful lives that we remind people of Jesus. You know, truth is, I'm glad to be back from camp. And not just because we had seven people and three babies in one cabin. (laughs) I'm glad to be back at camp because I'm eager to get back into the rough and tumble of our world and be able to share love and grace and truth and kindness with people. To show them the beauty and love of Christ, those who have yet to hear it or experience it or even believe it. We get to do that every single day. I'm really excited about the year we're going to have here at Grace, rediscovering Jesus all year long, learning how to be like Jesus and how to share Jesus with the world around us. And I want you to know I am more excited than ever about being part of a community of people committed to living such beautiful lives that we remind people of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for a time and a place to talk about important and challenging things. Thank you for the freedom we find in Christ and by your Spirit to be open and honest with each other and to stay in relationship with each other. We're thankful for your Scripture which guides us in every dimension of life, including this one. Lord, there are all kinds of questions, thoughts, arguments, exceptions we might be 
holding in our heads right now. But I pray for just a moment. You would grant each of us a, a quietness, a humility, a teachability, that we might be open to whatever you might have to say of us, to us. First of all, about our own lives and relationships and sexuality. And what you might have to say to us about the way we represent you in the world around us. Pray for any who might be troubled by the message this morning for whatever reason. By your spirit, may you continue to guide them, meet them where they are, lead them into good conversation with people who can talk freely and honestly from your word. Lord, make us into the people you would have us to be for your glory, for the good of the world, and for our joy and fulfillment. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.